Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is the Science of Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 98 of the Science of Motherhood. I'm your host, Dr. Renee White. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Um, we, oh my goodness, we are fast approaching episode 100, which I am so, so excited about. I cannot believe we are nearly there. Thanks to all of you who listen every single week and write beautiful reviews and send us ratings and and topics to actually talk about and people to interview. It has not gone unmissed. And I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who reaches out and DMs or sends an email each week around the episode and what you've learned or who you've forwarded the episode to. It is so, so heartwarming to receive those messages. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for that. Before we dive into today's guest, I just wanted to remind everyone that when I am not sitting in front of this wonderful microphone... Here in Hobart, Tasmania, I'm leading the pack with Australia's first biochemist-led doula village. We are experts in postpartum care and provide in-home support for overwhelmed and sleep-deprived families. So if you are pregnant, if you know someone who is about to welcome a new baby into their lives and maybe they don't have friends and family close by and you think, that's a tough gig to do it alone and I can assure you we were not meant to raise our children alone and you think that they might benefit from someone who is expertly trained in providing emotional and practical support you know doing laundry and making beautiful nourishing meals while you know, we hold their baby so they can have a nice warm hot shower alone <laughs> without thinking that their baby is crying in the next room. If you know of anyone or it is you yourself who is thinking, how am I going to get through this? Please feel free to reach out to our doula village. You can jump onto our website, ifillyourcup.com and have a look at some of the offerings that we have there with our doulas. We have got everything from virtual postpartum planning sessions with myself. So whether you are here in Australia or overseas, we provide those services. It's a two hour chat with me after a very comprehensive survey and we work out what your best postpartum is going to look like and how we are going to get you there. Some of our in-home services include single days with our doulas all the way up to 10 weeks of absolute bliss and support. Just imagine that. Imagine someone coming to your house every single week to make beautiful meals for you. You're relaxing on the couch, baby in arms. You can go have a nice hot shower. You can go sit in the sun and read a book and we just take care of the rest. Imagine 
that. So jump over to our website, ifillyourcup.com if you are interested in having one of our beautiful doulas support you during the fourth trimester. We have doulas in Victoria, New South Wales and Tasmania at the moment. So let's jump in to today's episode. Oof. It is, it is a highly controversial topic, this one, that we are going to be talking about. It is none other than tongue ties. And today's guest, Melanie Van Shelven, she is an oral health therapist and orofacial myofunctional therapist, say that six times fast. And she is practicing at The Face Peel, which is Mel's own practice, And she practices face-to-face in Bowen, North Queensland and Australia-wide via telehealth. Obviously, given her expertise, her passion lies in sharing the connection between the mouth and the rest of the body to empower families towards better health. And it is a fascinating topic. Like, oh my goodness, it is just so, so amazing. I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. As I said, albeit a controversial product, you know, kind of topic here, Mel has this amazing understanding and it is like, it kind of reminds me very similar to those people who (laughs) back in the day when I was working in the science lab, you know, just the concept that if an experiment worked in a single test tube, And then, you know, for those people to then extrapolate and go, well, that's absolutely how it should work in the body. It is just mind blowing to think, no, that doesn't happen at all because it is isolated. It is in a test tube. We really need to see what the flow on effect is, what the knock on effect is of, you know, all the other molecules and proteins and drugs and all the rest of it. What happens in the body? It is so different to just you know, what's going on in the test tube. So we can't take one piece of data and extrapolate it to another when there's a whole another universe of things going on out there. And that is what Melanie so eloquently articulates today in this episode. And it is part one of our episodes with Mel. Today's episode, we're going to be focusing on tongue tie. And in a later episode, we are going to be talking about mouth breathing, which up until quite recently, I had no idea about the effects of mouth breathing and how detrimental it can be to your health. So obviously in today's episode, we're going to focus on what is tongue tie and, you know, the signs of tongue tie, why the diagnosis is so controversial, you know, what happens if you don't quote unquote fix a baby's tongue tie and, you know, what are the flow on effects? And I guess as a practicality, and I always love to bring it back to this practicality of, I want to make sure the episodes that you as a listener are understanding that yes, here's the science about it and we're empowering you and educating you, but what are you going to do with this information? And so we talk around, you know, if parents are concerned with their child having a tongue tie, you know, who do they contact? Who do they get a second opinion from? Where do they start? What does that look like? Because I think that's a really important point to make in all of our interviews with our experts. So sit back, relax, get a pen and paper if you want to. It is such a fascinating episode and I cannot wait to share our second episode with you around mouth breathing. But without further ado, here is Melanie Van Shelvin. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Mel, how are you? 
Hi, Renee. I'm good. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Now, we are going to talk about a potentially highly controversial topic today. <laughs> it uh, it definitely, I think, lights up the social media accounts that uh, I definitely frequent. And I know for a fact that when we are providing our in-home care as doulas, it is something that comes up all the time. It's tongue ties. And we're gonna we're gonna dive into the controversy of it all and all that kind of stuff. But first of all, straight off the bat, let's talk about you. Let's talk about your expertise and how you have kind of become, you know, someone in this forte of tongue ties. Tell us all about you, Mel. Uh, so I guess that at base, I'm a dental practitioner. So my qualification is oral health therapy. So I have a clinical dental degree in oral health. Um, that kind of, even in itself, just saying that some people are probably like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so <laughs> and for the is... listeners, she's got great teeth. So you're to be trusted, I feel like. <laughs> so that's like a combination of a dental hygienist and what people are probably quite familiar with the school dental therapy van. So children's dentistry and dental hygiene, and that's kind of mashed them together as well as my degree throws in an adult scope as well. So I have the qualification and ability to treat people in the dental sphere from cradle to grave, basically. That's <laughs> That's not everyone's qualification. That's sort of why I've, I've mentioned that because it depends where you've trained and when you've trained as to whether some people do have some age restrictions on what they do. Okay. Um, and from there, after I graduated, a couple of years after I graduated, I did orofacial myofunctional therapy training. Hold on. Can I buy a vowel yes. on that one, Mel? Yes. <laughs> Say that again slowly. <laughs> orofacial myofunctional therapy. Okay. So oro is, is mouth, facial is face. Yep. Myo is muscles. Yes. So orofacial myofunctional. Okay. We're looking at the function in the muscles in the mouth and face. So again, people are probably thinking, but don't dental practitioners know about muscle function in the mouth and face? And no, not really. That's We do anatomy and physiology, of course, part of our degrees, but we don't get in this really in-depth sphere of what those things really should look like and what they look like when they're going wrong, when there's dysfunction. So that is add-on training. It is so, so that's something I did a couple of years ago, a few years after graduating. So now I shifted my focus very much after I did that into this world of oral and facial function because it just lit my brain up. Mm. <laughs> I went to the course because I was interested. I, I was interested in why, why do we all have crowded teeth? Like, why is this happening? Why have we got kids that you know, seem to be doing all the right things. Mum and dad are saying they're doing the right things, but they're still turning up with tooth decay in the dental practice. It was mm -hmm. this much bigger concept that I really felt I didn't have enough knowledge around. And from a personal perspective, I'm I'm geared more towards holistic and natural and things like that. So to me, drill and fill, which is kind of the more old school um, <laughs> approach of dentistry where yeah. uh, there's a hole there, we'll clean up the decay and fill it. That doesn't really suit who I am. So yeah. I was looking for something more. So I went to that training partly to get some more information, but also it's like a 28 hour course and it's a really big chunk of my professional development. So it was kind of like, you know, two birds, one stone sort of thing. Yeah. And after sort of day one of that four day course, that was it. I was like, no, nah, this is it. 
this is what I have to do. I learned so much about myself as well as my patients from there. So I continued working clinically in, in dental, but I set up my own my own business with the oral and facial function side of things just short of a year after I did that course. And it just opened my eyes. Can't <laughs> I can't yeah. say enough how how transformational it was, if I'm allowed to use such a word. <laughs> you are absolutely. I've got so many notes already. <laughs> And yeah, look, in saying that, as you say, you've got questions already, that four-day foundational course, like it really was foundational. I've done over 150 hours of study since then Yeah, and I'm still going. Like you can never stop. I love that. I love people who are like, I'm always continually learning because, you know, there's another research paper or there's another discovery or we've learned something else, you know, because someone else presents with like a different kind of symptom or anatomy or physiology or whatever that is. I absolutely love that. Okay. It it made me, when you were saying, you know, people in the dental sphere, shouldn't we know about the muscles and ligaments and everything that kind of connects everything together? And it actually made me think of, it's synonymous with, and I'm not throwing anyone under the bus here, but it is synonymous with midwives versus lactation consultants. I think that there is this misnomer that midwives um, have a, an expertise as like an IBCLC, but, you know, some people just have the foundational levels, but I think, you know, um, patients may think that there's a whole new level. So, yeah, it kind of does make sense to me when you say that. Okay, I'm going to leave the other questions for a little bit later because I'm sure we're going to get onto this. But your practice, so obviously we're going to talk about tongue ties. I feel like we always need to start these episodes with a definition. (laughs) Maybe it's the scientist in me, but I'm like, what is the definition of a tongue tie? And also I think... In doing that, can we also explore for the listeners the spectrum of tongue tie, should I say, or classification or their mm-hmm. lack of? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> can we can we can we school the <laughs> listeners on on what a tongue tie is and and just I guess the vague nature of the spectrum? Yeah. I was only just saying to someone recently, I sometimes question my decision to get involved in this because <laughs> it is so gray. Um, I, and, I really and here I am wasn't. just stoking the fire, Mel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think probably even like take a step back even further from that, Renee, is it probably sort of um, understanding and accepting the concept that everything in your body is connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, unfortunately, our as you said, not throwing people under the bus, but our modern healthcare system, particularly our medical system, likes to chop things up. It yeah. likes to say this system, that system, yeah. these things aren't related. <laughs> Literally yeah. and philosophically as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so I think it's all, we all kind of had to dial back and remember that things, everything is connected in our body. We are one system. Um, so if something's happening somewhere it's happening everywhere so that's kind of a foundation thing that I like to kind of remind people of before we then move on to talk about what tongue ties are and what effect they have because if you come from a mindset that the tongue exists in your mouth and full stop then you're probably going to get quite lost in the weeds very quickly about why 
Sangtai has anything to do with anything else. Um, and second from that, uh, what's a freedom? Because <laughs> I'm going to start talking about freedoms being too tight and too short and all that, but what on earth is a freedom? Um, I prefer the word freedom. Again, another another way to confuse people. Some people say frenulum. I just think that's a longer word with extra letters than no need to say. So I like to say freedom. And I actually, I have a note here um, to quote from Dr. Nikki Mills, who I believe you know, yes. um, her and her associate from her, her research in 2019. So she did groundbreaking research about what even is the freedom anyway, and how does it form and where does it attach and what should it look like if it's sort of quote unquote normal. So her definition from that research was the lingual frenulum is a dynamic structure formed by a midline fold in a layer of fascia that inserts around the inner arc of the mandible, forming a diaphragm-like structure across the floor of the mouth. Mm. And then sort of further quote from that, the lingual frenulum is not a discrete midline structure. It is formed by dynamic elevation of a midline fold in the floor of mouth fascia. The reason that's so groundbreaking <laughs> is that we didn't have that definition before Dr. Mills did that. We didn't really, we, we knew it was connective tissue, of course, but actually defining it as fascia um, which is a very big part of why the tongue therefore next to the rest of the body. And also saying that it is not a discrete midline structure because prior to that, we were talking about it as if it was a midline structure. So that's kind of changed that definition there. So the frenum is that tissue underneath your tongue. It looks string-like or band-like. It attaches the tongue to the floor of the mouth and it is fascia. So it's connective tissue that connects for our whole body, connects various structures. So then what is a tongue tie? Mm. <laughs> I'm very long answer for you. I'm sorry, Renee. A tongue tie exists when that frenum, so that band of fascial tissue under the tongue, has been incorrectly attached in some way. So it's too short or it's too tight. My sort of gathering of all other people's definitions and research and things like that goes a little further than that. So that band is incorrectly attached. It's too tight. It's too short. And it has an effect on the tongue's ability to function correctly. So it's it limits its range of motion and that has an effect on a person's health and well-being. That's it. Okay, I love that. And I think uh, just for context as well, like the Nikki Mills's work which we had her very very early on in the podcast. You know, that was so groundbreaking because she was the first I think she was the first to actually obtain infant cadavers mm. to actually do anatomical studies on and mm. that's where she developed that definition and those findings so it is so groundbreaking and I I just I mean I I still cannot believe we're in 2023 and you know that more research hasn't been done on this particularly when it is one of the, if you speak to some, one of the most heavily overdiagnosed or just heavily diagnosed issues with children, infants, mm. and we're, we're all just like cowboying and cowgirling around with diagnoses and spectrums because can you explain to the listeners that we actually, and correct me if I'm wrong, we actually don't have a clear kind of defining levels or degrees of tongue tie are there well first of all in your yeah. opinion are there different degrees and how would how would we grade those like a similar I kind mm -hmm. of think of it like 
you know, we've got a really clear cut, almost like SOP on stages of cancer. Okay. Mm. And I hate to like bring it down a level, but like, it's very clear. It's like, this is stage one, two, three, four. Okay. So do we have anything like that currently for tongue ties or it's just, no, you just, it's like, yes, no, no. Um, so we have classifications for where the freedom attaches. Okay. So that's sort of from what type one to type four, type one being right at the point of the the front point of the tongue. Mm -hmm. Um, so those ones are really obvious and they tend to be the ones that are diagnosed and probably treated reasonably early in hospital and things like that, Mm -hmm. because they are so obvious. The tongue is tethered to the floor of the mouth. Parents will see it, you know, nurses, midwives, pediatricians will see it pretty quick pretty quickly. Um, the next one, the type two is a little bit further back in the tongue. So it is still at the front portion, but it's between the, the very tip of the tongue and the middle of the tongue. Mm-hmm. Two. Um, and then the other two are further back. So type three is just is behind the mid portion of the tongue. And then type four is what's called submucosal. So it's actually under the mucosal surface. Um, it's very posterior, very much at the back of the tongue. And you, you have to lift the tongue up, like forcibly lift the tongue up to see that attachment, um, to see that, um, that classification. Mm-hmm. So those are the four like sort of anatomical locations right. of the attachment. They don't mean anything about the severity and the effect on the person. Yes. Yes. So that's I guess what people want, what people want, and as you said, what we're used to is we want to know how severe it is. Mm. But that is so individual. That's the problem where we can't really kind of chop it up into little boxes and say, this is how severe your tongue tie is. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know. I don't know how severe your tongue tie is just because of where it attached on your tongue. Yes. I need to look at what your tongue's doing. I need to listen to what you're telling me about, you know, if it's an older child or an adult, how you feel about your tongue movement and what other things are going on in your body associated with your tongue and with a baby. We need mm. to listen to mum. <laughs> yes. We need to listen to mum's experience of feeding that baby, whether it's breast or bottle. Um, and then obviously babies do have their own communication, how they're behaving with their feeds um, and how they present with their tensions and, and all sorts of things like that. So this, that's, this, that's the problem there. We can't say, yeah. I, I, I can't stand the concept mild tongue tie. <laughs> Anyone's seen any of my social media? That is like <laughs> one of my biggest gripes. If someone's saying mild tongue tie, like you've got to ask them what on earth they mean by that because that that doesn't mean anything to me Yeah, <laughs> hearing that term. I have heard, and we are all about busting myths here on on the science of motherhood but I've heard that if you bottle feed your baby the tongue tie doesn't come into play absolute rubbish okay (laughs) absolute rubbish so um if you are bottle feeding I think you recently talked about paste bottle feeding that was yes yes (laughs) yeah so if you are bottle feeding a baby in the way that I guess a lot of people do in that they don't, um, it's not very technique sensitive. So baby's probably laying down and the, the bottle's probably poured, you know, for want of a better description, poured into the baby's mouth and there's yeah. not a lot of effort and response from the baby. Well, they're probably going to feed a lot better. Of course, they're probably going to feed a lot better. There's The milk's just coming down their throat. All they've got to do is swallow it. 
Yeah. It doesn't mean that baby then still can't have issues with air intake and reflux and all those sort of broader things that happen when you don't feed correctly. If you're looking at bottle feeding from a more functional perspective, which is that pace bottle feeding where Mm -hmm. there's different posture, there's different flow of the milk, you want to make sure baby has a latch on that bottle and that the teat is the right size and shape for that baby. You're going to notice the tongue tie coming to play a lot more then if you actually have been you know, aware and educated about how uh, it's always so hard to talk about this without feeling like you're, um, you know, being negative or isolating anyone Mm. based on their choices. But if you're not aware and therefore not bottle feeding in the way that would be preferable, um, Mm. then you're probably maybe not going to notice the tongue tie so much in the feeding realm of things. You might still have, a, as I said, a baby who has air intake and reflux and pain and muscle tension and small jaw and open mouth and all those things. Those right. things are still going to happen with a, with, in the presence of a tongue tie or so can still happen that, in the presence of a tongue tie. That's what I wanted to talk about. So, you know, there is some, I guess, conjecture out there, thoughts that, you know, one, a tongue tie will resolve itself and two, that the tongue tie is only, and I think this is where it kind of stems from where I've heard people say, oh, well, if they've got a tongue tie and you don't want to do anything about it, that's fine. Some people just stop breastfeeding, move over to bottle and they're told, okay, well, you know, bottle feeding's fine. It won't kind of rear its ugly head then. But Mm. what happens if you don't fix a tongue tie and I'm talking like some people some people might have always had a tongue tie like you know as adults but what are what are the things that kind of crop up and I think I would also like to kind of preface this by saying this is not going to be for everyone no you know like this is because again we don't don't have this grading system of like okay well people with a grade one will have this and grade two will have that but like I guess just in general terms what are some of the things that that crop up if you don't manage a tongue tie sure yeah and that I guess yeah as you said it is another part that confuses people because tongue tie is a risk factor for a lot of flow and effects but it's not a guarantee so again I, I do come across that where people have been informed if you don't treat this tongue tie, your child won't be able to speak properly. That's not true. That's, <laughs> that, the, that's that, the number one thing I yeah. hear. Mm. I get really scared mums calling me mm. saying, I've just been to the maternal child health nurse. They've said, you know, Bubby's got a tongue tie and it's this fear of God that's put into mm. them. Mm. Um, and it comes if- both ways. It comes both ways for mums. If you do this, terrible things might happen post-operatively for yes. your child. Uh, well, that's my blood. <laughs> um, <laughs> because that's not informed consent to me. That's, you know, that's, that's scaremongering either yeah. side. Yeah. And I don't, I don't appreciate that at all, especially not on you know, four new mums that are in the midst of oh. a storm of other things. I know. And all they're trying um, to do is their best. And hmm. yeah, which is where hmm. they go and seek alternate opinions as well. Hmm. But okay. So if, if yeah. they, if they, didn't want to do anything with the tongue tie, what are the types of things that might crop up later? Yeah, so a tongue tie is a risk factor for sleep and breathing disorders because lack of control of the tongue can mean the tongue becomes a like an airway obstruction uh, as well as because the tongue is so important for guiding our oral and facial development, so our jaw structures and our teeth structures. It is a risk factor for having changes to those structures. They're generally more small and more narrow. 
So there's the sleep and breathing component and there's the dental development component. It is also associated with fussy and picky eating because of a limited tongue movement and some nervous system interactions when we don't have correct um, posture and movement of our tongue. Pain. Pain is a really big one, especially um, head, neck, shoulder, jaw pain, because if you're not using your tongue correctly because it's it's tethered to the floor of the mouth, you're going to bring in other muscles um, to do its job. Right. So over long periods of time, that's that's going to be a problem <laughs> for mm. muscle pain. And oral hygiene can be affected, so there can be higher rates of tooth decay and um, gum disease and things like that in people with limited tongue movement because our tongue is supposed to be our first sort of cleaner. <laughs> our saliva is there flushing things out, but our tongue is supposed to be doing the physical part, clearing out any debris we've left behind from, from food. Yeah, is... I never thought about that. Yeah. That is like <laughs> that is like the human body's toothbrush. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, okay. If you if you have full range motion of your tongue, um, just think about it next time you eat something stuck in mm. your tooth. Like what are you what are you gonna do about it? You're gonna throw your tongue back there and try to annoying you're going to flick it out and if that doesn't work or if you don't have motion like proper range of motion of your tongue you're probably going to put a finger in there um, to get the food out instead in line with that that sleep disorder component mouth having a a tongue tie is a risk for mouth breathing because it sits on the floor of the mouth and opens the oral cavity at the back therefore opening that airway structure less airway volume and pressure through our, our nasal airway structures means we're going to have to grab compensation breaths from our mouth. So I think I've probably covered the, the general yeah, spectrum of, of risk factors. Yeah. But as we said sort of right at the start of, of this topic is that I can't tell you that when I meet your baby, your two-year-old, your 10-year-old, I can only tell you what's happening right now. I can't tell you that they will have X, Y, Z happen in the future. Mm. Only that those things are at a higher risk. So as you said, some people live their whole life with a tongue tie. There will very likely be implications of that, mm. but they can live a life. And that's like, that's me. I'm 32. I have a tongue tie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's going to be treated very soon. Um, if all things in life, um, you know, line up and allow me some time to do that. But the biggest thing for me is pain right now. Um, jaw pain, head, neck and shoulder pain. So for adults that are listening, like, are you going to the chiropractor or the osteo or your massage therapist again and again and again and coming, just going back full circle to your neck pain, your jaw pain, like nothing's like you're kind of just maintaining it and it's never actually getting anywhere. Mm. Um, then I would have someone have a look at your oral function. Might not be a tongue tie, but certainly there can be, you know, limited movement of your tongue and you're bringing other things in to, to do those functions. And then, oof going to affect everything else. That's fascinating. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about the treatment because I think again this is another controversial part of it all. And I have been on the receiving end of phone calls going they've just booked me in. They're going to laser. I'm not sure what do you think? And so my understanding is, and I love your thoughts on this, Mel, but my understanding is that it is possibly safer to just do a snip over a laser. I don't know whether the laser has got some bad press because I think there was at one stage there was a child who moved and their lip got burnt. I don't know whether the technology has got better over the years, but Can you talk about the options that are available 
And also I think within that, who is actually qualified to (laughs) one, make the diagnosis and two, actually administer the treatment? Are they the same or different people? Uh, They can be the same, I guess, but not necessarily. So who's qualified to diagnose? Doctors are technically, um, you know, qualified to diagnose, but if they haven't had extensive oral function training, they might not be the best person to diagnose or Mm -hmm. not diagnose. Mm -hmm. So I guess that comes back to that, yeah, how are we diagnosing it is probably a better question even. Yeah. So you're looking at what the tongue should be able to do, and that's going to, again, vary between age groups because what a baby should do with their tongue is going to look different to a toddler and older child and adult. But what is whatever is appropriate for that that person at that time, what their tongue should be able to do. It should be able to lift to their palate. That's everyone. It should be able to lift up there and it should rest up there. It's supposed to move side to side. It's supposed to you know be able to lick your lips in a circle, move all the way to the back of your mouth, protrude past your lip. And now that is one of the things that's usually the baseline of people who don't have a full training in oral function. They go, oh, can, the tongue can come past the lip so it's not a tie. That is only one one element of what a tongue should be able to do. Okay. So even though, yes, that's a good sign, it's great if a tongue can come past a lip or, you know, past the, the border of their lip, it's not everything. So you are looking at what the tongue needs to be able to do in the mouth, both with its movements and its rest posture. But like we were sort of saying a little bit before about talking to the patient or the mother, if they're a child, what else is happening in mm-hmm. that person or that child's health and life. How are they feeding or eating? What's their posture like? How what's their then their oral posture? Are they able to close their mouth? Are they able to nasal breathe? Have they got any pain? What's the rest of their body doing? Are there other, especially in babies, are there other muscle tensions that could be pulling on parts of the mouth? Like you need to take a really big spectrum of what's happening with with the individual person, um, knowing those potential risk factors and potential effects from limited tongue movement. And then you can use some tools that have, you know, actually definable measurements. Um, in babies, there's the Hazel Baker Hatliff zero to six month old um, assessment tool, which actually gives you some scores to work on, which is, you know, some it's obviously it's good no matter what, but some people really like numbers and black and whites and things like that <laughs> that can help. <laughs> You're looking at where the where the frenum is attached. That is part of the broader diagnosis, even though in and of itself where it's attached does not define a tie. And then when we have older children and adults, we can also look at measuring it's the elevation of the tongue. So how wide can a person open? And then how wide are they opening once they've lifted their tongue to the roof of their mouth? And then again, that gives you a nice grading system on their range of motion. Yeah. And you get some nice numbers there, which which help you make decisions about Check. what's happening. <laughs> yeah. But even like every single one of those tools, you know, in and of itself can't exist on its own. Mm-hmm. Because even if we're looking at the tongue range of motion ratio, so that's Dr. Zarush Sargi and his associates from the Breathe Institute, they've developed that. So we're looking at how wide a person can open versus how wide they open once their tongue's elevated. And if you use that tool alone to diagnose a tongue tie, then you've really not looked broadly enough. And I can apply that sort of a good example is myself because Mm -hmm. of this long-term dysfunction in my mouth. I can't open my mouth as wide as I should be able to. Mm -hmm. So I can lift my tongue to the roof of my mouth with my full opening. That if you just use that one tool, that looks like I've got 100% range of motion Mm -hmm. of my tongue. But if you look more broadly at at the person, you'll realize I can't actually open my mouth as wide as I should. So that's not an accurate 
right. sort of evaluation and you need to look further. And as I say, in my case, if you look further, you'll see quite a lot of muscle tension, dysfunction, pain, and then a history of all these things that relate to tongue tie. <laughs> so diagnosing the tongue tie, we've got tools at our disposal to help us, but it really needs to come back to the individual and the symptoms that they are experiencing. And then further from that, is that a tongue tie or is that limited awareness and strength of the tongue? Because someone might not move their tongue properly, but that might not necessarily mean that it is tied. So if other things have come into play, like you know, birth interventions, things like injuries, muscle tensions, mm-hmm. low muscle tone, um, long-term mouth breathing, anything that's going to alter their perception and movement and you know, strength and ability of their tongue, they may present like someone who has a tongue tie, but doing a little bit of preparation with oral therapy and body work and things like that can completely change what a tongue looks like in some people's cases. So diagnosis is very complex. Very, yeah, it is. It is. And it is, it involves clinical decision-making. Yeah. So I guess people don't really like that because we want to, we want a tick sheet in some ways. Yeah. And we, and we also want a sheets. silver bullet as well, Mel. Yeah. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, more often than not, we see it from, you know, from an infant's perspective, babies fussing at the breast, you know, not having efficient milk transfer and, and things mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, I think we just either automatically go, if baby's got a tongue tie or your baby's mm. got colic or reflux. Mm. They mm. seem to be the buckets that everyone gets put into, which I think is not right because I do see just that classic, it just looks like a paddle pop stick, you know, what are those? And they just shove them in the tongue and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 no good there. And I'm like, is that it? Like, oh, if, like the if, one that lifts it underneath to look at the frenum? Or? Yeah, like that's all you know, Mm. some people are doing and I just kind of think, oh, Mm. okay then. And then you've got Mm. the diagnosis and then it's that really kind of stressful decision-making and the contemplation of treating it, which is either snipping it with some scissors, is that right, or laser? Yeah, scissors or laser. So what's, I guess, what's (laughs) what's the premise behind the two? Like why would... Why would you choose one over the other? What are the pros? What are the cons? Mm. How does that all work? I'm more interested in the person that's providing the the treatment than the instrument that they're using. I think some of the issues around the laser, it probably doesn't apply to water lays, the sort of relatively recent technology where there's Mm -hmm. water comes out at the same time as the laser and cools it. Yeah, okay. So uh, something that I was thinking before when you were asking your question is that for some reason we get quite, I guess it's probably because it's babies, but we get quite caught up in the dangers and the risks of these procedures Mm. in ways that we don't about other procedures. The reality is that if you have any sort of surgical procedure, you are at risk of injury. And if you take any medication or go under general anesthetic, you might die. (laughs) And that's like, that's a pretty big thing to say, but it's true. Mm. Um, But when you go to do those things, you don't have a doctor warning you about death, do you? <laughs> you don't have a doctor saying, I'm going to do a knee reconstruction, but I might slip and fall and cut the wrong thing. We don't have, it's true, but mm-hmm. we don't have that same kind of fear around the um, informed consent 
of the procedures or, yeah. you know, broader conversation of the procedures as we do about tongue ties. And I say it's probably because we aren't talking about our beautiful, precious babies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but that is the reality of any surgical procedure. And in, in that sense, it is no different to any other surgical procedure. So it deserves the same um, contemplation and the same, you know, significance as any other surgery, but it also, it shouldn't be given too much weight. Like we don't give to other things. So in terms of the what's what tool is used, mm. like I said, I prefer to talk more about the person who's providing the treatment. Do they understand tongue ties? Do they understand that there's prep before and after? Like are they talking to you about those things? Like I work with a provider who won't do the procedure if you don't prep. Like that's the sort of person we want what's to work with. What's the prep with. that... that- they have um, to do. So that's oral therapy. So depending on the age, that's going to vary a little bit. So for above, um, you're going to be working with an IBCLC preferably, one that yep. has oral function training, and we're going to be stimulating the movement of the tongue. We want it to be lifting and going side to side um, in the ways that it currently has the capacity to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also going to be working with however parents are feeding to make sure that, that is being optimised. And you also want to be doing some body work especially in our little bubbies, they've had a pregnancy, they've had a birth, and no matter how wonderful and ideal all that was, they've been cramped in a little space and they've been flung out into the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that might have also been quite stressful and quite traumatic. They need some time to recover. They need their muscle fun- their muscle tensions and functions to recover. We need to look at that fascia because, we're, again, we're talking about that freedom. It is fascia. It's connected to the whole body. Has it had a chance to relax? Has their nervous system had a chance to relax? Because a lot of the things that might be presenting as tension could be nervous system reactions, you know, like the clenched fists and the, you know, the upset, uptight baby. That's all part of the diagnosis process a lot of the time too. Get their tongue moving the way it should, optimize their feeding and make sure there's no residual muscle tension and nervous system impacts and then reassess to make sure they actually are still a candidate for a procedure. So that's Wow. Okay. So all of that happens beforehand. It should. It should. Oof. Okay. Pediatrician sees something and snips it in your hospital and away you go. Oh, man, Mel. I wish wish that was, (laughs) like, I wish that was accessible Mm. to everyone because, yes, I do see that. It's like pediatrician or maternal child health nurse like day one and then like Mm -hmm. day three it's like you're in the doctor's surgery and snip snip Mm -hmm. and like that's not that as you say Mm -hmm. it's kind of almost like um is it kind of like like gastric bypass surgery you know how they're like okay well you're gonna have to lose a little bit of weight before surgery and then let's see you're gonna have to prep you're gonna yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going to have, you've got to see a psychologist to make sure this is right for you. Like, yeah, that's a whole, That's really because the tongue is involved in so much of the body, this is what I was sort of meaning about just treating it as a tongue. No, yes. you're treating a person. Yeah. You're treating the effects and the interactions of that tongue. So, yeah, as I say, particularly in infants, we want to do that prep to make sure that is actually a diagnosable tongue tie. Um, I have a colleague, Brenda Munns at the Gentle Village, who's an IBCLC, and she has some brilliant stuff on her um, Instagram, excuse me, Instagram page. If anyone wants to see what that looks like, oh yeah, what let's a baby put that in looks the show like notes. before and after. Because I don't actually do the oral therapy for a baby. That needs to be an IBCLC with oral therapy training because it's oral motor kind of mm. stuff. It's not necessarily orofacial myofunctional therapy because that's sort of a four year and older it's quite an intensive sort of program but yeah she has brilliant showing you using that hat lift that 
you know, a nice black and white tick sheet number protocol yeah. to <laughs> help people, you know, help put it all into context. And then what does this freedom look like? And now this baby's gone through some oral therapy. So they've stimulated tongue movement and optimated, optimized feeding. And they've seen a body work provider like an osteopath. Mm. And then we come back before, you know, they go ahead to go to do their procedure and the baby no longer presents with a tie. They no longer meet that pick sheet criteria and they no longer visually appear to be tied. It's wow. Not, that's not going to apply to everyone. So no, anyone who's kind of like, gone the other way and freaking out and it's been wrong, that's not necessarily true either. Yeah. But the good thing about that that process is you need to do the prep anyway. Yeah, right. You need to do the prep regardless of whether you're going to do a surgical procedure because all of those impacts need to be managed whether or not it's a tie because the baby still needs to be able to move their tongue properly and have muscle tension relief and, and feed yes. properly. All yeah. those things are important regardless of whether there's a tongue tie or not. Um, so for older children, same, you know, same sort of thing. They need to do preparation before they go and do that procedure. So I liken it sort of, as I explained to people, um, imagining if you were born with your forearm attached to your bicep, yeah. with a, you know, a piece of tissue there mm-hmm. and you went your whole life without anyone really caring, like it was a big deal, whether it was a few weeks or a few years or a few decades. If a surgeon came along and, and cut that piece of tissue for you, your arm would fall down. You would not just automatically go, oh, I know how to use my arm and my elbow and my hand and my shoulder in this yes. new way. You've got all these complex interactions there leading all, you know, all the way up to your jaw in that, in that case of a, a hand to hand to arm. And you would expect that you would be preparing and rehabilitating from that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> because absolutely. you would not have the strength, the range of motion, the pathways in your brain set up to, to yeah. know what you do and how you do it, all your reflexes. So why would we treat a tongue differently? That tongue has not been operating the way it should have. So the person who belongs to the tongue doesn't know how to use it. There won't be the strength and the range of motion and the built-in pathways ready to go. They need to be taught. So you prepare in the best way that they currently can, reevaluate to make sure with that preparation, they still diagnosable with a tie. And then once they've had the procedure, we rehabilitate from there as well. Same sort of concept. We're building muscle strength and oral awareness and, and um, movement. So why would you get knee surgery without physio? Like, it does, know, it doesn't make that, sense, does it? Yeah. You know that when you've had whatever injury in your knee, you would have walked differently and that will start to affect your hip and your back and that can go all the way up to your jaw. Oh, so, yes. Yeah. 100%. Uh, speaking from someone who is a chronic ankle injurer, <laughs> you know, when you're on crutches for like a week and then you finally put your, you know, foot down after some physio, you're like, okay, there's some muscles that, you know, mm-hmm. haven't been worked for a while. So just clarifying that the, the I guess, the recovery afterwards, is it very mm-hmm. similar to the prep? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, when you're looking at infants, there is there is wound stretching, which I, I guess. Um, and what was your what was your colleague's name? Your IBS, Brenda Munns, M U N Z, from the M-U-N-Z, Gentle Village. From the Gentle Village. Okay, hmm. I love this so much because yes, I I agree with you hundred and ten percent. If you're looking at things in isolation, it's like you know when I was a, t- a scientist. <laughs> 
It's like, oh yeah, great. Things work in a test tube. Whoop-de-doo. You know, let's put it into an animal model and let's see what happens next because the complexity of, you know, other proteins and interactions and chemicals, like it could completely fail. Like, you know, you just have no idea. Um, Even twins, even identical twins have had a different pregnancy. They've been positioned differently inside mum, you know, so that, that is different. They are different. So, so different. Oh my goodness. Okay. I'm just digesting. I'm digesting this because I'm like, holy guacamole. Mm. I I think one of the questions I want to ask is, I think, why do you think that it's so overdiagnosed? Like, do you think they're legit? That's kind of funny because I also see it underdiagnosed. Okay. All right. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> do you do you have any thoughts? Because I guess there's uh, there's a narrative out there that in Australia there has been an absolute explosion mm. of children being treated for tongue ties. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on this at all? Like, do you? Yeah, I know. Is this, um, is this I know a people do- like to? Sorry. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, like, is this a is this a thing where it's like, you know, we've finally uh, created awareness around it and so we are looking for it uh, mm. or, or, or like what or, you know, is it a financial thing? Like uh, is someone benefiting from these treatments? Like what are, what are your thoughts? Are you comfortable yeah, with I'm, sharing your thoughts on this? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a bit of a curly question because I think, you know, with everything, there's uh there's finances there's probably political reasons there's probably many many reasons for this i know people like to put the graph of the laser sales next to the rate of tongue-tie procedures and okay. show you how they've they've equally risen right <laughs> but correlation is not causation right um mm-hmm. that's that's your scientist <laughs> um, point of view I think there's there has been more research. Like the last 10 to 15 years, we, we don't have enough yet, but there's been more research. There's more interest. There has been more awareness from the public as well. We're also we're looking at women more interested in breastfeeding and breastfeeding to full term. So not, not that not that women ever gave up on that, but we're just seeing a resurgence in the interest. And then they're encountering feeding problems. Right. <laughs> and they have a you know, a drive to want to continue to breastfeed. So they're going to chip away at all the things that are contributing to that problem. And in some cases, they're going to come across tongue tie. So I guess it's a bit research. It's a bit public interest. It's a bit breastfeeding. It's a bit, I guess, the access even for a practitioner to have the ability to do Mm. the procedure, Um, you know, that's much more accessible to do a course and have access to the equipment. It's not one thing. It's, yeah, it's not yeah. just uh, like the um, tongue ties. It's it's hmm. yeah. It's I think it is. It's a very very complex yeah. issue. But um, to your point about overdiagnosis, I think that really that there probably is an overdiagnosis component when you don't when we're looking at that scenario where people haven't adequately prepared and assessed. Mm-hmm. So a visual exam. And then diagnosing a tie and then snipping it is not what I would consider a very functional approach. Mm. To like sort of as as has been quite covered, I think in our conversation, you, you can't diagnose the tie by looking at it. Yeah, you need to 
you need to do a full evaluation of their oral function and and who they are as a person and all the other things that are, are affecting them and their health and what's going on. So when your child opens their mouth and someone says that is a resonant tongue tie, you haven't had a functional evaluation. So there is that overdiagnosis component, I suppose, where both yeah. people haven't gone through what I would consider an adequate process. But that point that I said before where I think it's underdiagnosed, because I see name and age, I've seen them with a tongue tie that I didn't know anything about, <laughs> yeah, myself right. included, until I went to that, you know, that introductory course I mentioned earlier and went, oh, my God, I have a tongue tie. Is that fascinating? 27. And oh. you can you can go back, you can go back to my whole feeding history, my family. You can look around me and my family and see all the tongue ties, that genetic component. I was going to say, is it genetic? Yeah, that's the best explanation we've got. Okay. <laughs> genetics. Um, we'll shelf that it, one until we've got something better yeah, there. <laughs> look, it forms in the first trimester of pregnancy. So that, that's, you know, that's highly coded yeah. work. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> From the component of you know epigenetics, we don't yet know what triggers that genetic expression, yeah, or what did trigger trigger it generations ago that's led to us to continue forming it. There is a dentist, and I'm just blanking on his name, so that's sorry, okay. no credit, but he has a theory that we're sort of perpetuating that genetic pool um, because however far back you want to go, a few hundred, few thousand years ago, it's a you know a bit of a, a harsh reality, but a, a tongue-tied infant may not have survived. I have heard that before. Yeah. Yes. So as we've come into, you know, treatments and, and bottle feeding and things like that, they have survived and then therefore have been able to keep creating their genetic, <laughs> their yeah. sort of um, that pool, you know, but I, there's got to be something else and we just don't know what it mm. is yet. I, I know people have theories around the MTHFR gene mutation, but I think Dr. Mills's research calls that into question a little bit because, as I said, we were previously considering the freedom to be a midline structure, which is kind of that folate mm. element there. But if we're now looking at it a little bit differently, yeah, perhaps it's part of the presentation of, of that gene mutation. But, yeah, tying it to folate might be a little more questionable. But That's a whole other question of worms, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and as we've said, like that research is, is like is foundational really. It's, we yeah. need to springboard from that. We need a lot yeah. more. Mm. Do you know if she's doing any more research at the moment? I, not that I know of. That's, yeah. that's her only published stuff is from a few years I ago now. I feel yeah. like I need to PubMed her and see what, or just mm. send her a quick email and say, what's going on, Nikki? <laughs> Anything else yeah. you want to share with us? <laughs> she has contributed. I guess it's her fair share. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's probably having a little break. <laughs> yeah. yeah, probably she's just shut her email account just yeah. stop talking to me everyone. yeah yeah this has been fascinating absolutely fascinating this is going to be a part one if you're happy to come mm. back Mel because yeah Probably, yeah not too much more confusion than clarity <laughs> <laughs> no but I think that that is I think that's that's actually to of benefit to the listeners because more often than not like I've said many times they're getting this black and white like okay open your mouth oh yep there's definitely a tongue tie there, black and white. Okay, yeah, we have to snip. Whereas, mm. as you've said, this is a very complex kind of condition that may or may not be able to be rectified through other means, you know, attending to, as you said, some osteo and some, you know, exercises and, and things like that. 
I think that that in and of itself is just amazing knowledge that parents Mm. should have because there are a lot of fear-mongering tactics going on and, you know, as long as you've got all the information, you're going to, you're going to make the right decision for you and your child, Mm. whatever that decision is. That's always kind of been my (laughs) premise. But yeah, I think this has been a really fascinating chat. We're going to finish off with our rapid fire, if you're okay with that. Yeah. Do you mind if I just add something for our parents to kind of wrap that up for a little bit? Absolutely. Yes. Just because it, so it doesn't create more confusion. I think, especially if you're going in with a baby, if you don't feel comfortable, if you feel stressed, if your provider has not suggested that other people be involved, like someone breastfeeding, body work, taking time to prepare and recover, then they're probably not the best person for you. Mm -hmm. Just kind of, you know, you deserve to be supported. You need to be able to ask questions. You need to be able to take your time. It's incredibly rare that, you know, that it's a life-threatening scenario, like that your baby will not feed at all unless you have this procedure. So you do have time and you should have time because that preparation is going to take a few weeks. Mm -hmm. You, You can't just jump in. We shouldn't, you shouldn't just jump in and be harassed into it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as I've sort of mentioned before, same goes both ways. If someone's harassing you not to, that's not fair either. And they're probably not the right person for you. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That is super, super important. It's just, yeah. Informed consent. And exactly. if you, yeah, as, if you're not feeling comfortable about it, you need to, there, yeah. if you can't advocate for yourself, I was just talking to someone this morning about advocating for themselves in birth. If you can't mm. advocate for yourself, and sometimes we can't as mums, like, you know, we're so tired and mm. all the emotions are going and, you know, if you've got a really fussy baby screaming because you're just not getting that efficient mm. milk transfer, that's hard. So if you can't do it, then you have to maybe call upon someone else who can, Mm. a partner, a best friend, Mm. a mother, like whoever it is, but do take your time. You're right, Mm -hmm. Mel. And it's not fair. It's not fair to put that on mothers. No, It's just it's just kind of how it is right now. Yeah, take someone with you to the appointment. Like even if it's Mm. your neighbour, your neighbour Val, like (laughs) like just have someone else there with you because I always find safety in numbers. That's, that's my, that's my motto. Every time, but I'll just, yeah, if you're finding it stressful, it's not you. It's the scenario. Yeah. I yeah. had a baby with a tongue tie, came to it with a profession as a professional of the training and I found the process stressful. Mm. So yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> well, is that your top? Cause my first question is what's your top tip for mothers? Is that your top tip? Yeah. Let's, let's, let's <laughs> leave that back for sure. Let's um, knock that one off the list straight yeah, away. Definitely. Mel. Your experience matters. Of course it matters. Mm. Yeah. Both, like even as I've said, in the diagnosis process, if someone is looking at your breastfeeding baby and saying their latch is fine, but you're saying, you know, pain, nipple damage, colicky refluxy, unsettled, not, you know, I don't have enough milk or they're not taking enough milk, like all these other things are happening and someone says their latch is fine that's not taking into your experience. And as I just mentioned, that was like, I came to it knowing my, like I diagnosed my daughter's tie and high pellet and all those things I was telling the hospital and I was told my latch was fine. I was in more pain than childbirth feeding that kid, but my latch was fine. Well, her latch was fine. You know, 
that's I knew you know I was just fortunate that I knew where to go from there like Mm. I I could I had colleagues I had resources but it was still difficult but I got that experience that people get where it's not just about the latch it's not just about what the tongue looks like it's so much bigger than that and you yeah you deserve to be listened to what is your go-to resource, whether it be like a book, a workshop, something like that for birthing mothers? If 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 we've got pregnant mamas and they're thinking, okay, baby's coming, you know, what what are your go-to things to kind of be armed with information? Yeah, good question. There is a book, um, no one ever told me that, or my mother. Oh, I'm going to be awful and not know the author's name. I'm going to Google it. What's it called? No Diane one... Barr. No one ever told me that. Let me have a look. No one ever told me that before, is it? Before, yeah. yeah. There's a Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before by mm-hmm. Dr. Julie Smith. Is that right? No. Yeah, it's on my bookshelf out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nobody ever told me or my mother that and it's by a Diane Barr. Okay, so, yeah. There we go. Um, so, yeah, the book No One Ever Told Me That or My Mother by Diane Barr. So she goes through this whole process of oral function, the feeding, breastfeeding and bottle feeding and and solids and things like that and what those things should look like Mm -hmm. and how then they relate to how then how babies should be sleeping and functioning like that. So that's a really nice resource to to go through. I also really like Sleep Wrecked Kids by an Australian speech pathologist, Sharon Moore, and Dr. David McIntosh, ENT. He has three books now. Just really good resources that don't, like they're really informative and well-researched and referenced, but they don't feel like you're reading a researched and referenced <laughs> kind of text, you know. It doesn't um, feel like you're trawling through PubMed. <laughs> yeah, it's not kind of like, yeah, it's boring you to tears. It's They're really interesting and it, maybe that's a little biased for me because I really care about it, but um, they are readable <laughs> and they, they're really comprehensive and, and great for parents to just kind of get that baseline of what is not normal. Mm. <laughs> what I you like should that. keep an eye out for yeah yeah our last question is always the one borrowed from Brene Brown which is what do you keep on your bedside table <laughs> thanks Brene um <laughs> <laughs> nothing of mine at the moment um so I I bed share with my my daughter um yeah. her toys are on my bedside table that she brings she brings to bed we don't sleep with them they just have to come to bed so um most interestingly, there is a bright yellow duck watering can in that. So, <laughs> uh, but otherwise it's, it's blank. I, I wouldn't usually keep anything on my bedside table. I don't know what that says about me. I find <laughs> it always. A psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always find it fascinating. I forget who it is now, but someone just said dust. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like, oh yeah, we all have dust. <laughs> mm. Mm. That's really funny. It has been amazing to speak with you. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge. My goodness, this has been so eye-opening, particularly from like a science perspective. I love this stuff so much. And obviously I want all the listeners to know where they can find you and ask you more questions. And your resources (laughs) on Instagram are dynamite. Like if, okay, tell everyone where you are on Instagram because if you've been hiding under a rock, you need to go and follow Mel because it's amazing. I was scrolling through it the other day and I was like, oh my God, this is so good. And and your meme ones are hilarious. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate um, yeah. the comedy interjected with the science. <laughs> yeah, we've got to have a bit of comedy really. Yeah. 
yeah, my Instagram is the faceplace underscore OFM. That's the main place you'll find me. I have the same page on Facebook, but I don't like Facebook. So <laughs> things just kind of get copied and pasted over there. I don't like it. Yeah, mostly Instagram and my website, thefaceplaceofm.com.au. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I think, yeah, as I said, I think this is going to be a part two because I really want to talk Mm. about the mouth breathing Mm. because I have a couple of friends who've had children suffer from this and it is a fascinating area. Mm. So, yes. Until next time, thank you so much, Mel. Thank you. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.